I could also see there are some real challenges that um, schools of every type are facing around the sort of missing months um, that we've all just been through in terms of where students have maybe lost ground in terms of their education. And I could see that a, a potential reaction to that would be to kind of buckle down on the more traditional ways of teaching and learning and, and subjects um, and really kind of miss the moment to do some redesign and some thinking about what's what's important and to take the moment of disruption and try to to try to institute some new approaches. You're listening. You're listening to. You're listening to. You're listening to the Learning Futures. The Podcast. Learning Futures. The Podcast. Learning Futures Podcast. You're listening to the Learning Futures Podcast. Welcome to the Learning Futures Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Baghetto. On this show, we explore big ideas, key issues, and questions facing education now and into the future. Moving from what currently is to what could and should be, including considering serendipities and setbacks along the way. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Sarah Stein Greenberg. Sarah, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work you do? Sure. Uh, Thanks so much for having me, Ron. I'm really excited to have this conversation. Um, So I am the executive director at the Stanford D School, um, which for folks who uh, may not be familiar with us, um, we are kind of an unconventional institute um, on the heart of Stanford's campus. We uh, work with students and faculty from all over uh, the university um, in a a very interdisciplinary kind of mix of of, uh, disciplines and cultures and approaches. And we throw our students kind of into the deep end regularly with really uh, challenging open-ended design projects that um, often result in both, um, you know, sometimes very uh, useful and innovative solutions to a a range of challenges, um, but also some pretty powerful learning experiences. Um, I've been there for the past uh, a little over a decade and um, no no day is like the next day. Um, tons of uh, excitement and variety and um, it's a it's a great place to work. That's excellent. Thanks for sharing that, Sarah. So we're going to be talking about learning futures, but what we like to do is also invite guests to talk about what their past journey has been. So how did you arrive at where you currently are? Maybe what are some of the serendipities along the way? I think this is an important thing for young people, especially because I feel like a lot of pressure is on them to figure out sometimes as early as middle school, but certainly by high school and college, you know, what they're going to be when they grow up. Um, So we like to invite our guests to share their own journeys and stories with us. So if you'd indulge us a little bit and tell us about your own journey. Well, I love your framing um, of serendipity. I mean, I um, I, I like to say that I, I have a job, uh, sort of a career pathway that only makes sense in retrospect um, and that really nobody could have predicted, um, including myself. And, and part of that is just because, you know, I have uh, I have an incredible role today at the D school. But, it, you know, in fact, the D school just didn't exist when I was, um, you know, when I was in college, when I was in grad school, it was just getting started at that point. Um, so, you know, I could not have, I could not have uh, kind of picked this pathway in advance. Um, so I, I have a kind of a, a amazing sort of educational foundation, um, starting with the, the Quaker school that I attended in Philadelphia. 
um, and a really strong grounding, I think, in um, both, you know, social justice uh, work, the importance of education, um, those those themes and those threads were really woven um, throughout my my childhood. Um, and then I landed at Oberlin College, where I studied history and politics. And for me, those topics, those subjects were, I think, you know, I wasn't sure that I wanted to have a future as a, you know, as an academic or, a, you know, as a historian or a political scientist, but I knew that those topics were important to me, j just in terms of being a member of society and being kind of a good citizen. I, I, I really like to understand how things have come to be, what are some of the kind of invisible factors that are surrounding us um, that, that shape the world that we live in today. Um, and, and that guided some of my decision-making. Um, then after school, I, I went and worked um, in a nonprofit context in healthcare and ultimately landed at the business school at Stanford um, as a grad student. And this was a little bit of a strange choice, I think, um, for me, just given the, the background that I had. Um, but I was really interested in trying to figure out, you know, coming from more of a nonprofit environment, you know, what is it that the private sector does differently that's about um, meeting new market demand as it changes, evolving more rapidly, risk-taking? And I didn't realize it at the time, but what I was looking for was the language and skills around innovation. Um, I didn't have that vocabulary. I didn't have the name for it, but that is that is actually what I was looking for. Um, and I was very lucky to find that um, in part because, you know, serendipitously, when I was a grad student at Stanford, the D school was just getting getting going. Um, so I took some of the very early classes at the D school. And at that time, it was in a trailer on the edge of campus. It was, you know, just a, a space that the faculty had actually kind of renovated over the course of a winter break. It was, um, you know, really, uh, really hand built. Um, and it was quite experimental. And I found myself loving being a part of that experiment as a student. Um, so, you know, fast forward a few more years, I've graduated, I've spent a little bit of time um, in the private sector as a consultant working on innovation and strategy projects all around the world. Um, and then I returned to the D school in a leadership role uh, in 2010. And I've been there ever since. Well, thanks for sharing that, Sarah. And I think our listeners will be interested in hearing now from your vantage point at the D school, and maybe a little bit more about how the D school serves as a vehicle or place for you to bring together this intersectionality of your commitments and interests that you've carried forward and how does design in particular and the work and innovation that you're doing with your colleagues help you leverage all these assets around you to address some of the most pressing issues you see in education so that's a long question so maybe we could just break it down and say this what did you see as the most or what do you see as the most pressing issues in education and how do all your prior interests and commitments and now your position at the D school help you address some of those questions? Well, I think, you know, there are lots of pressing issues in education. Um, one that I uh, pay a lot of attention to is I think the gap between how a lot of our students arrive at, you know, my vantage point in, in higher ed, you know, arrive on campus um, very, very used to uh, succeeding in very structured educational environments. And then the kind of the, the degree to which to operate well in the world after you graduate, th there is so much tumult and so much chaos and um, it's rapidly changing. 
that I, there's this, this moment that we have to help them shift from this, you know, much more structured, in some cases, quite rigid mindset um, about learning and about um, who they are, how to be effective in the world, and then the realities of what they're going to find when they graduate. And at the D school, we really try to close that gap as quickly as possible by offering students the opportunity to work on projects that haven't been kind of overly constrained in terms of their messiness, in terms of their complexity. So just as an example, you know, we might have a group of students working with um, a local hospital to redesign, you know, what's the experience for patients of uh, being in the waiting room? Can we design something that might improve that experience? Or we might have um, students working on, um, actually, I'll, I'll give another a healthcare example, working with directly with parents um, of, uh, you know, premature or um, uh, infants who have really ha have some kind of um, significant um, pediatric medical condition um, and have a have to navigate the medical system and have a lot of potentially like, you know, life-saving equipment in their homes, what could be done to improve the, the experience, the care experience for those parents and infants. So these are, these are challenges that often don't have clear right answers. There's no one single right answer. Um, and that is, that is by design. We intentionally want students to have to go through an experience where they're responsible, not just coming up for creative solutions, but also in, in really framing or reframing the problem, um, challenging any assumptions that we've made as the, as the teaching team in terms of how we framed it up originally. And those kinds of skills of how do you navigate an ambiguous, open-ended project, those are the exact skills that we think that they're deeply going to need once they, you know, once they graduate and even before they graduate. So I think for me, you know, just to try to summarize, I, I, one of these big challenges in education is how do we close that gap from how students are coming in, you know, in terms of their secondary school preparation you know, with not just the expertise and the knowledge that they need, but actually the skills to keep learning and to keep being able to adapt and improvise as conditions change after they graduate. Yeah, I absolutely love that, particularly from my vantage point as a creativity researcher. But I think our listeners would be interested in trying to understand how do you scaffold that? So this place called school is often a very kind of predefined space. All the problems are predetermined. The ways of solving the problems are predetermined. And even the solutions are usually already at hand. So kids that are typically successful in school, it might be a completely different experience when you're asking them to identify and find problems themselves. And these are really ambiguous and ill-defined problems filled with uncertainty. And then try to figure out their own ways to address those problems. And there's just uncertainty through the entire process, which they're probably not used to because everything's so well-defined in school. So moving from this very predetermined toward a to-be-determined space, what kinds of scaffolds and supports have you seen that are necessary? And what kinds of things have you seen that maybe surprised you in students' ability to move from that model of predetermined schooling that I think most of us are familiar with to this new one that you're describing? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I will say, you know, I don't think it happens all at once. Um, and we... 
we think about, you know, scaffolding over the course of, let's say, a 10-week class in order to help shift students from, you know, what can be sometimes a, a, almost a more brittle uh, state where when first confronted with that level of uncertainty or ambiguity, they might freeze up or they might get really uncomfortable or you might see some really, you know, tense moments on their team. Um you know, the, and the, the way that we handle that is we basically um, use the same approach that psychologists use that's called guided mastery, in which you want to ex- you want to create an exposure to that thing that is scary or that thing that um, creates that uncertainty a little bit at a time and then gradually increase the, the complexity or the difficulty. So on the very first day of a school class, you are likely to do a live project it's going to be pretty constrained and pretty set scaffolded in terms of, you know, like there's there's uh, very short time uh, constraints. You're maybe just working with one partner instead of on a larger team. Um, the topic might be predetermined. But for example, we might, you know, do a design project that's around, you know, Im- redesign or improve the oral uh, health experience for your partner. And you might be looking at a very small data set, like that person has brought in one photo of their setup in their bathroom where they brush their teeth. Um, and then you interview them and you get a little bit of a spark of insight about what their needs might be. You go through a process to quickly uh, define the problem based on their own needs. And then you might come up with a few early ideas and either sketch them out or build some very early stage uh, prototypes as solutions, test them with your partner. And that's kind of one complete design cycle. Um, in a longer project, you would might you maybe go through that cycle many times. Each of those um, aspects would be much larger and use a wide range of different methods, but that's like, you can, you can have that learning experience in two hours and get a sense of the different ways in which you might move through this kind of an open-ended project. Then your next project might be two weeks long. And then your final project for the course might be six or seven weeks. And you'll really have that opportunity to dive in with a project partner from the community or from someplace else in the, in the state or in the country. You'll be able to um, do much deeper research. You'll have much more data that you have to play with and connect the dots and find that, excuse me, find that signal um, in terms of what you want to, what project or what problem you really want to frame up. And then of course the the bar in terms of the quality and the the impact of your solutions uh, is much higher as well. But it's that, you know, we really believe that you need multiple cycles through a design process to start to get some intuition about it. Um, It's not something that if you just break into chunks and learn in a very linear way that you're really going to be able to integrate um, over time. So we we use that iterative approach both in design, but also in how we teach design and how we teach students to be um, able to tackle those more open-ended problems. Thank you, Sarah. I really appreciate that. I think that's a very helpful way and concrete way to visualize how your work at the D School helps students engage in what might be, for the first times in their lives, dealing with really ill-defined problems in an educational space. So something we like to do on this show, because it is a Learning Futures podcast, and the future is uncertain, and there are multiple futures ahead of us, we'd like to invite our guests to consider three possible futures. So the first being, what is a possible good future that you see? So maybe in the work that you're doing, what do you see as something that could be um, good or hopeful if this work were to continue? 
And then what is a bad possible future? So that's the second possible future. And then finally, what is the beautiful possible future? What would be the most aspirational or the most hoped for future for, from your vantage point with respect to the kinds of work you're doing? Yeah, I think, you know, I think a good um a good version of the future um, would be this type of learning experience is available to everyone. Um, that there's a, a shift and a sense that um, you know th- these kinds of skills are actually quite important, and that we you know a broader a, a broader recognition. Um, you know, in our society that learning is something that happens over the course of your lifetime, that conditions will continue to change and that the the ability to be, you know, prepared for those future changes um, has to be seriously tackled within the educational system. Um, So that would be, that would be a good future. Um, I, you know, a bad future, I guess, you know, we often see kind of, um, trends or, uh, you know, pendulum swings. I think a bad future for me would be we somehow kind of lose some of the ground that we've made in terms of spreading some of these ideas, um, which are, which have started to take hold in many places, um, both in higher ed and in K-12 education. I I could also see, you know, just there are some real challenges that um, schools of every type are facing around the sort of missing the sort of missing months um, that we've all just been through in terms of where students have maybe lost ground in terms of their education. And I could see that a, a potential reaction to that would be to kind of, you know, buckle down on the um, more traditional ways of teaching and learning and, and subjects um, and really kind of miss the moment to do some redesign and some thinking about what's what's important um, and to take the moment of disruption and try to to try to institute some new approaches. Um, and then I think, you know, the asp- the aspirational, the beautiful version of the future um, for me is one in which, you know, people's creative abilities are, are you know, fully activated um, probably by mechanisms that are both, um, you know, within the education system and within our broader, you know, our broader culture um, that we no longer think that, you know, there's just some people who are creative and innovative and somehow they're just special and they were, you know, born that way. I firmly believe that every human being is creative. And um, the the idea that we could somehow all reach, you know, what we talk about as creative self-efficacy, um, you know, that idea that you can be confident in your creative abilities, that you have the time and the space to apply them um, to the kinds of challenges that are meaningful to you. Um, that would be my, my beautiful future uh, that I'd love to see. Yeah, that's fantastic. I love your emphasis on democratizing creativity. That's a key theme in my own work. I know you have a book coming out, or maybe it just came out. Is it out yet? It is. It came out uh, just a few weeks ago. Great. Congratulations, Sarah. I'm glad your book is out now. Can you maybe share with our listeners a little bit about some of the key themes in the book, maybe even around democratizing creativity and how it fits into the work you're doing? or anything else you'd like our listeners to know about the book. Absolutely. So, you know, the book is called Creative Acts for Curious People. And I chose that title very intentionally because, you know, there are a lot of folks who just don't think of themselves as creative. Somehow that idea has been, um, you know, it's like edited out of their vocabulary. And I hope 
that most people, however, do think of themselves as curious or having some curiosity. So my goal in, in, with this book is to try to bring the kinds of um, skills and methods that we teach at the D school to a much wider audience and to kind of continue to reduce the barriers that some people may feel around using these kinds of approaches um, that come from design and uh, you know from the broader range of, of uh, creative fields. Um, the, the other thing that I was trying to do in this book is really to um, translate the experience of learning at the D school into this written uh, form. And the experience of learning is hopefully um, very rich. It's very emotional. It, we're, we're paying attention to those highs and lows that everyone feels when you do creative work that, you know, where there aren't clear answers. And sometimes that's very scary and, and difficult. And as I said, you know, teams have real conflict at moments. I, I, I wanted that to kind of leap off the page at people as well. And so the form of the um, majority of the book are uh, the, over 80 assignments that we teach at the D school that readers can try for themselves and uh, on a variety of skills. So it might be a skill around um, retraining yourself to notice the things around you in a very intentional way. Um, or it might be skills around, you know, you've got an early idea, you want to try to build it into some form of a physical prototype so you can test it. And, you know, there's activities that are around, well, making sure that you uh, build that into a, a multiple different types of prototypes so that you can get a much wider range of responses, which you might not necessarily think to do or, or normally be prompted to do. Um, and then there's uh, activities that are around how do you um, get good at uh, receiving and giving feedback when you're when you're critiquing uh, creative work as it's emerging? How do you build some of the kind of rapport and trust into a team or into a classroom or into a faculty community um, that you need to actually prepare people to do this kind of open-ended innovation um, work that we all care about? So there's a very wide range of different um, types of learning experiences um, on the pages of the book. And then I also took some time to um, write some short essays that are kind of sprinkled throughout. And these are topics that are really important to me, but I think we don't always um, explore them uh, fully and, and share them, but they're kind of the behind the scenes thinking um, uh, in, in, in some ways about our, our teaching philosophy. So for example, there's a whole essay that's on the role of emotion in teaching and learning around creativity. Um, there's an essay that's around um, what's called productive struggle, which I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with. Um, but the idea that you know, when you struggle to learn something at first, you're much more likely to um, retain that knowledge and to be able to apply it to novel situations. And that's exactly what I was saying before. We don't want to edit that struggle out of the kinds of projects that we throw at our students because we want them to actually be building that muscle and stretching. Um, so those are a few of the different of the different angles um, that I that I use uh, to approach the work in the book. Well, I love that. And thank you for sharing that, Sarah. We got an advanced preview of your book, and I found it really visually engaging as well. What I love about the book, and what I'd like to hear a little bit more about, some of your design ideas behind the book. So there's a lot of really nice visuals in there. I love the idea of you could just drop in on any one of the topics in the book. You don't have to read it cover to cover. But I'd like to hear your thoughts on how do you imagine people using and engaging with this book? What were some of the design principles behind the way you put the book together? because I really think it's a unique way of representing these ideas. 
Well, thank you for that. That was, um, in part, that was my goal. Um, I think, you know, there are lots of amazing kind of toolkits out there um, for, you know, how do you approach a, a project from a design perspective? And I, I didn't want to just replicate, um, you know, the ones that are available already. Um, so I really focused on how do you, how do you transfer those learning experiences in, into these pages? And one of the keys for me to do that was to have them um, convey that that emotional experience, that trepidation that you feel when you're sharing a, a new idea with someone, or the really intense bond that you can have with a person when you um, engage them in an empathetic and caring way and learn more about their needs and their life. Um, and so I worked really closely with an incredible illustrator named Michael Hershon, um, who's a uh, uh, professor um, in Utah. And he, um, and one thing I have to say about working with Mike is that he was like so willing to experiment with lots of different ways that we could visualize these assignments. And so he would often come back with, you know, five or six different starter ideas um, for the direction that we could go in. And then we would work together to kind of figure out the, the right one um, to pick. Um, so that was a really fun and it was actually a wonderful learning experience for me to, to learn with him, um, as a partner. Um, so the, the illustrations were really, really important. Um, but then as you say, there was also some important design choices that had to do with how, how will people navigate this book? Um, I hope that no one, unless you really want to reads it from front to back. There's no need for you to do that. It's really meant to be um, organized in such a way that you can find the thing that's going to inspire you today or help you develop the skills that are important to you right now. And maybe you'll put it back up on the shelf and then take it down, you know, a few months from now or a few years from now and find something new to keep developing your, your own creative abilities or inspire you to take some of these into the classroom or into other environments that you work in. And to do that, um, you know, there is a regular table of contents where you can find everything, but there's also um, kind of a guide to how to find your own path through these assignments. And the assignments often touch on more than one particular skill or ability. So if you're really interested in developing, you know, the art of noticing and observing in a different way, there's a whole cluster of assignments um, that are grouped together that will, will help you do that. Or if you're interested in, you know, feedback, or if you're interested in ethics and design, or if you're interested in one of these many different topics, you'll be able to, to find your path through that particular um, set of topics. I also say I've heard from some people who are having fun just kind of like reading one assignment a night um, and kind of having that randomness and serendipity, uh, you know, just help them explore things that maybe they weren't, you know, they didn't know that they were seeking, but it, it lands in a particular way. Yeah, that's really great. I really like the kind of choose your own adventure approach that this book enables people to have. Another thing I really like about this book, Sarah, is I see it as kind of a handbook that you can really take into professional practice or into your life and help you realize the creativity that you already and already possess, um, really using it in a much more systematic and intentional way. And Ron, I'll just say one more thing about that, which is that, you know, I think that there are, um, there are many different mental models that people use to describe uh, their own creative process, or um, one of the many ways that you can think about having a, you know, articulating a design process. 
And it's important to me that people start to really develop their own. I think a lot of us are trained on one version or another. So you might be familiar with, you know, in the, in the UK, there are a lot of designers who are kind of trained on the double diamond framework, which is, um, you know, where you, you are intentionally moving through modes of um, diverging and coming up with lots of ideas and then converging and deciding which of those you're going to move forward. Um, and that's one great way to think about design work. Another one is to think about different steps that are arranged in a circle where you're going iteratively back through all of those phases. That's another great way. There is no one right way. And so I think it's quite important that as people want to develop deeper competency and fluency in using some of these methods, that you kind of deconstruct some of those models and you think about what are the fundamental goals of any of these methods or any of these steps and you use them when they are right for you and right for your project context. Yes. Thank you for underscoring that, Sarah. I think that's a really key point. I feel like people sometimes do get trapped in techniques and sometimes lose the principles behind the techniques. But once you get those principles and you really understand them, then you can kind of modify your own techniques. You can kind of tailor design your own approach and apply them in your own setting, your own life, and with folks you're working with. So thank you for underscoring that. Well, we really have appreciated your time and we'll be sure to drop in the show notes your information and of course, a link to where listeners can find the book. But is there anything else that we haven't covered that maybe you want to mention? Well, I'll just say that, you know, a lot of the methods that are in this book are intentionally quite fun and that's not an accident. Um, even when you're tackling really serious, really substantive challenges, that creating that space in your own brain or in your community or with your team to engage with topics um, in a playful way, that is part of opening that important space for creativity and for new ideas to emerge. And so I think it will be um, you know, interesting for folks to, as they work their way through the book, to, to see that really come out and to see the ways in which you can be tackling. I mean, there are assignments in here that are about um, you know, identifying and acknowledging bias and thinking about equity and racial justice. And, and yet they're also still done in a way that can be very human and connected and even playful. And so I, I just want to underscore that I think that's an important um, mindset that I, I certainly try to bring to this kind of work and that I hope readers um, also uh, get a lot out of and appreciate. Thank you again, Sarah. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening to the Learning Futures podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information and see you next time. The Learning Futures podcast is produced at Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College at Arizona State University. Executive producers are Dr. Sean Leahy and Claire Gilbert. The show is produced by Dr. Clarine Collins and Karina Munoz-Baltazar. Audio production provided by Claire Gilbert. <laughs>